the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 16, Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State. Talking with author Professor Danny Dorling, Oxford University. Our guest today is Danny Dorling, Halford McKinder Professor of Geography at the School of Geography and Environment, Oxford University. He joins us from his office in Oxford. Hello, Danny, and welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on again. Danny, briefly tell us about your work at Oxford. My work is uh, as a human geographer. So what I do is look at what happens to people around the world, in Europe, and particularly in the UK, and I concentrate on the social statistics of people, how their health is, how their life expectancy is changing, how much they're paid, how easy or difficult it is for them to get a house, levels of education, access to education, and levels of poverty, and in particular, inequality. And I've been doing this for over 30 years and for 10 years at the University of Oxford. Danny, your latest book, Shattered Nation, posits that the United Kingdom has been fundamentally damaged by 40 years of neoliberal policies by successive conservative and labor governments. Inequality is on the rise. Life expectancy is declining. Infant mortality and childhood diseases are up to cite but several leading indicators. Please give us an overview of the shattered nation. The shattered nation is something that's crept up slowly on the UK. It's a change that's occurred over many, many decades. 40, 50 years ago, life expectancy in the UK was amongst the very best in the world. There were only six small countries where people on average lived longer. And if you combined the populations of those six countries, they were mainly Nordic, their population was less than that of the UK as a whole. So we could claim to have the best health in the world. We had the lowest uh, infant mortality rate in the world. We had the most progressive education system in the world, one which has been copied by other countries, which now rank at the top of the education league tables. We had desegregated our schools so that all children, almost all children, went to the same schools and, and mixed with each other. We had the most progressive of housing policies in the world. Shortly after the Second World War, a majority of children at some point in their lives were living in houses which had been built by and provided by the state. So we were able to get rid of our slum housing and get rid of a situation in which people were handing over a huge proportion of their income to private landlords. And this this improved housing overall because you couldn't sell shoddy houses Mm -hmm. if people had another option. We had full employment. We had high wages. We had really low geographical inequalities. I used to live in in the city of Sheffield, now often seen as a poor city, In the 1970s, Sheffield had a life expectancy that was higher than the average Mm. uh, for England at at the time. 
everything wasn't perfect if you were a straight white man it was pretty good if you were a woman it wasn't so good but it wasn't that women in the uk were doing worse than women elsewhere if you were black it wasn't good and if you were gay it wasn't good but again that wasn't something that was particular to the uk and we slowly began to lose those advantages we went down the ranks just one or two ranks every two three or four years we blamed each fall on some external event but now we find ourselves for instance if you look at neonatal mortality there are only five or six countries in europe these are the five or six poorest eastern european countries where a newborn baby is more likely to die hmm. in their first four weeks of life earlier this year economists uh, stephanie flanders of bloomberg tv uh, john byrne murdoch of the financial times released data and wrote stories about how the poorest fifth of people in the United Kingdom are now poorer. They have less money. Uh, they cannot buy as much food as the poorest fifth of people in Eastern Europe. So we have become a peripheral European country, a very, very poor European country. Hmm. Well, I can go on and on about this. When, when I was <laughs> just a couple more, then I will stop. But it's sure, it, it, it's just stunning. When I was growing up in a, in a very late sixties, early nineteen seventies, there were almost no homeless people. People sleeping on the streets in England. There were a few old tramps from an earlier age, old men. The sight of tents and people sleeping on the streets is something that's only really emerged in the last two decades. And we have a worse homelessness rate than anywhere else in, in Europe. Uh, but underlying all of this is this great growth in inequality between groups, which mostly occurred in the 1980s, but then grew a bit in the 1990s. And we did nothing, nothing at all, not even in one year, to reduce it in any year of this century under different governments. So by 2009, the UK had become the most unequal country in Western Europe. We overtook Portugal, which was becoming more equal. Mm -hmm. And then recently, we have become the second most unequal country in all of Europe by income. Only Bulgaria is more unequal than we are. And for those of us who do social statistics, we are waiting for the announcement that Bulgaria is no longer the most unequal and the UK ranks number one in Europe for inequality. That's they're amazing statistics, and I know we'll get into that as we as we move into the book. But Danny, Britain's welfare state was enacted by the Labour government of 1945 to 51, a series of landmark reforms that created national health care, pension reform, education expansion, housing for the masses helped to improve British living standards throughout the 1950s, 60s, and into the 1970s. The 1942 Beveridge Report by social economist William Beveridge provided the blueprint for new social policy reform in post-war Britain. So what happened to cause such a reversal in all that social progress? It's a great question. Perhaps you have to go back to why did we get that social progress in the first place? We were last at a peak of inequality as we are now, around about 1918, towards the end of the First World War. The First World War partly bankrupted 
the country. We, we never meant it to go on for so long. We thought it would last for weeks and it lasted for years. We had to tax the wealthy to pay for the First World War. Mass unemployment uh, began to emerge, became much worse by the 1930s. The usual models of dealing with things were not working. And of course, we were losing the empire. This is the largest empire the world had ever known. And we in Britain were at the heart of it. When you lose an empire, you become poorer. What emerged was a coalition. It took two decades to emerge, but you mentioned William Beveridge, the social economist. He was mm -hmm. also a liberal politician. He represented the Liberal Party in 1942, but he was the architect of the welfare state. It was the Labour government which enacted the welfare state in 1945, but the education acts which began to make things more equal were done by in 1944 by a Conservative minister. The beginnings of the nationalisation of hospitals, working out how we took our huge mess of charity and private hospitals mm -hmm. and brought them together into something far more efficient. That plan originally was a Conservative health minister. So all our political parties began to move together and realise we had to work together. And when they did, the results were stunning, unbelievable. I mean, Labour and Conservative administrations after the Second World War competed with each other to build high-quality social housing for people. There was a race to see who could be the best politician. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how did it break down? And that the problem with my story is that not everybody liked what was happening. Uh, it was particularly disliked by the very wealthy. They didn't like the higher rates of taxes they were having to pay. Mm -hmm. I suspect they were a bit suspicious of the lower orders being given a, a good education. They, they maybe thought the people should be kept in their place. They particularly didn't like the empire disappearing. They hated inflation in the 1970s because inflation eats away at wealth, which is a problem if you have wealth. And we became complacent. We became complacent at what we'd won. We became complacent to the idea that it was possible for all of this to be largely lost in not many years. Margaret Thatcher was the leader of the opposition in the late 1970s, and she stood on the platform where she promised great change. She promised to reduce taxes. She promised to give people greater freedom to determine their own lives. And she said, if we did this, there would be a trickle down of wealth from the rich to the poor. And she promised that things like health inequalities, of which, of course, we still had some, they would reduce. She believed this would happen. She signed up to a target in the 1980s, saying that by the year 2000, we would halve our health inequalities if we followed this deregulation model. And about 30, 35% of people supported her, which in the British voting system is all you'd actually need to form a majority government in 1979, 1983, 1987. And those governments systematically unraveled what we had. They privatised our post office, our telecommunications, our electricity system. They destroyed the miners' unions in 1984 and 1985 in one of our longest and most bitter strikes. It was a war. Uh, and it was a war in which this 35% of the population were told that they would do very well if they won it. And initially they did. Initially their houses went up in value. They became better off. But as the better off people became better off, 
that took money from the rest and the gap between the rich and the poor widened and widened and widened. So that by the end of the 1980s and the early 1990s, the top 10% of people in Britain, my income, were taking 40% of everything a year. And then that wasn't reversed. And, and so part of the answer is not just that this, this social war happened, but the war was so successful that it moved the other political parties, the Labour and the Liberal parties, who'd been part of uh, the progress in the past, towards the thinking and the beliefs of the Conservative Party. And we had a consensus that inequality was OK as long as the rich paid their taxes. And this was somehow going to make Britain great again. We would have, some people even talk about Empire 2.0, uh, but we would regain our our position in the kind of league table of world nations. Ideally at the top, and it may sound ridiculous, but even in recent years we've had politicians promising that if we just do what they want, the UK will become the richest large nation in per capita income by the year 2030, richer than the United States. It's a madness. Mm -hmm. It's a madness which is now getting towards its end. I mean, hardly anybody thinks that these things are credible. But that, that promise was made in 2015. You know, that, that is only eight years ago that we were hearing this kind of talk. And it's a talk that began in the 1970s. We'll become number one in the world again if we just allow the rich to get richer and everybody will benefit. Danny, the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher and John Major were in power from 1979 to 1997. And of course, that was that was the, the peak, the heyday, if you will, of neoliberalism. Then Tony Blair came into power and under Tony Blair and his successor, Gordon Brown, they were in power until 2010, from 1997 to 2010, so 13 years. Now, you said that the, even the parties of the left, the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, went along with this neoliberal philosophy and policies of the, the, the Thatcher major governments. But how could they completely ignore the statistics yeah. That you, were, that you were citing about the rise of inequality, the decline in life expectancy, the increase in infant mortality. How could those statistics that are so stark and so compelling be successively ignored by parties of the left, parties of the right? It seems as though British leaders were just not paying attention to the, the data the, the raw data that's coming in that you've that you very aptly demonstrated here in this book, how could they ignore that and yet the British populace, populace and voters went along and continued voting for them? Well, I mean, the leaders changed and, and the parties changed. So these were different people. I should say at this point, life expectancy wasn't yet falling. It was simply rising more slowly than it was elsewhere in Europe. We mm -hmm. were dropping down the ranks, but it was later that it actually fell. Partly to get elected, partly because he thought it was the right thing. Tony Blair made a promise before 1997 that for the first two years of the Labour government, if he were to win, they would follow exactly the Conservative spending plans. And they did. So from 97 to 98 and 98 to 1999, we in effect had a Conservative Party still in power, even though Tony Blair had won a, a large landslide. Now, they did make promises. They made promises that they would abolish child poverty. And they made some changes which were a little bit helpful, which moved maybe as many as a million children ever so slightly over a poverty line. 
but the families hardly noticed this at all. And our statistics on inequality, the international genie statistic that the OECD publishes, not in a single year did it move by more than 1%. And 1% is the error in the surveys used to calculate it. So the great claims that New Labour made have done some good things. When you look at them, you see that they're very shallow claims. You could say that what they did do was stop the UK becoming even more unequal as fast as it had been. I mean, if you're going to give any credit to, to New Labour from 1997 to 2010, I would say maybe if they hadn't won and held power, we could have become as unequal as, as Singapore or as the USA. The USA is a fraction more unequal than us. We do not have the amounts of homelessness that the USA has. We do not have the life expectancy, which is much lower than the USA has. We have better infant mortality rates in the USA. We have fewer people in prison per head than the USA, although we have more than anywhere else in Europe. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown believed quite a lot of what it was that the Conservatives had argued for. They believed in this idea that if you unshackle people who are wealthy and let them become wealthier, then everybody else will benefit. And their opponents in the Labour Party lost. In effect, they were, they were pushed out, shouted down, they were ignored. There were other distractions. The Iraq War, uh, which we willingly took part in, and most almost everywhere else, everybody else in Europe didn't, was a distraction to what was going on. And the Liberal Party was changing. Mm -hmm. There was a rise in what was called the Orange Book Liberals, who, who believed in conservative economic policy. So that when Labour finally lost power in 2010, and the Conservatives had to form a coalition with the Liberals because they couldn't get enough seats in the House of Commons otherwise, the mm -hmm. Liberals were quite happy to go along with austerity and even more cuts. Labour did do things like increase funding for the National Health Service, which with an ageing population we needed. But still, we were not keeping up with the European norm. We were slipping down the ranks you know, doing worse than Germany, worse than France, and so on. But it was gradual. It was gradual. People didn't notice, and they blamed it on other things. They said we weren't being productive enough. You know, there was some other problem. We weren't giving our banks enough freedom. And then there was a crash in 2008, and we realised we'd given them far too much freedom. And it wasn't until just after 2014 that life expectancy actually began to fall in the UK. And it was lower in 2015, 16, 17, 18 than it had been in 2014. Infant mortality, as you say, was actually rising at this point. This is almost unheard of. We had maternity units where children are born, falling apart, not, not operating. We had winters, two winters, where all surgery in hospitals was cancelled because mm. there weren't enough doctors to be able to do it. And this was all before the pandemic came. But, but there wasn't people... Part of the reason is that those people who could remember the 40s, 50s and 60s actually became more likely to vote Conservative because they were very likely to own houses. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a property-owning democracy. They didn't have to worry about low-paid work because they were heading towards retirement or in retirement. They worried about push-button issues, in particular immigration. Margaret Thatcher used immigration in 1979 uh, she talked about how immigrants were swamping us. She, there was a lots of very nasty racist talk, which got really strong at that time. 
far, far right parties, the National Front and other fascist parties disappeared because their vote went to the Conservatives. And then Labour also began to use that language about immigration and so on and looking after British jobs for British people, although it did open our borders up uh, to people from Eastern Europe. So we had these distractions, distractions about foreigners, about wars and other things. And the foreigners were easy uh, to use. So when people said, I can't get an appointment with a doctor, I can't get into hospital, the answer was, oh, there are too many foreigners using the hospitals, whereas in fact we were only managing to run our hospitals because we had enough hospital staff from overseas. When people couldn't get their child into the school they wanted, the story was, well, that's because of the immigrants, that they're taking your child's school place. When people couldn't afford a house or couldn't get one to rent, again, rather than saying this is because we've become more unequal, we've let unscrupulous landlords get away with what they want because Margaret Thatcher abolished rent regulations, we blamed it on the immigrants. So we had this increased xenophobia and increased racism in a kind of subtle way, not the obvious racism of the past, not the on the street hitting people and, and shouting things and slows, but a, a more subtle kind of Britain isn't Britain because these people have been allowed to come in, which eventually resulted as a major reason for why we had Brexit in 2016. So we've had a series of distractions, which means that we took our eye off the ball of the most important thing in the society, which is what is the size of the gap between the rich and the poor, and is it narrowing or is it widening? In your book, you talk about the role of right-wing think tanks, and you cite a an address in Westminster close to uh, the Houses of Parliament, 55 Tufton Street. Apparently at that address, at that location, there's a number of these right-wing think tanks which are uh, housed. One of them in particular, I guess, played a a major role in influencing the short-lived administration of Liz Truss, who in her early days as prime minister, very few days as prime minister, she and her chancellor, Kwasi Karteng, went on to uh, propose cutting the top income tax rate and other policies, which which the markets reacted to violently. But just coming back to the role that the uh, that think tanks played in her fashioning those policies, talk to me about that because it seems as though it seems as though those think tanks have played a, a significant role in keeping this neoliberal, philosophy alive and giving it and giving it more oxygen over the years yes without the think tanks i don't think we would have got to this particular position we only had a few think tanks in the 1960s and 70s things like the adam smith institute and its precursor think tanks were relatively rare in in europe rich donors anonymously supporting a small group of men almost always young men to produce support saying you must do certain things and lobbying politicians. We didn't have much, but they began to grow in the 80s with inequality because people become richer as inequality grows. And some of those people who became richer wanted to defend their money. And so they they funded a whole series of organisations, ones to fight against migration, all kinds of things. And they didn't have that many addresses, hence 55 Tufton Street, but 2 Lord North Street and a few other houses very near the House of Commons end up being used again and again as the address. Our current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has published three very thin books. Mm -hmm. I think all three of them have been published by uh, these think tanks. London and Britain became 
the centre for these think tanks in Europe. They're where they're absolutely concentrated. There was some American influence. Uh, and of course, the idea of doing this comes from America. The idea, the idea that if you're a very, very wealthy man, uh, almost always men, and you want to help determine what happens in your country and you don't like the fact you only have one vote, then you could use your money to directly sponsor some politicians, and they do. But it can be even more effective to use your money to pay other men to write pamphlets and do things on social media and take politicians to dinner and feed through this story that you have about how society works, where the underlying message is a few people are really special and gifted, which is what the rich men think they are. Most people are pretty useless and have to be controlled. Governments waste money. The less we tax, the better. If you have a low tax economy, you're going to grow, grow, grow. It'll all be great. And we were the centre for that. So one great irony is that after we left the European Union, there were hardly any of these think tanks left in the European Union. They're, they're, the next biggest cluster is in Warsaw in Poland. There aren't many of them. So they're kind of, they're left in London, a bit moribund. This trust was absolutely in the control of one of these think tanks. She appointed its members to be her key advisors when she became prime minister. They all flooded into number 10 and got new jobs. And those jobs like her lasted 49 days before. Like, this is the remarkable thing. It was the international money market. Yes. It, this isn't a benevolent set of people. <laughs> right. It was the international money market. It, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't the voters. That, that said, it, you can't do this. It's not going to work, and we're not going to invest in this country because it will fall apart if you if you lower taxes on the rich and and cut spending in the way you're going to do. And so it was the bankers that made it not possible for the experiment to carry on. It was it was the international bankers in the end that just said, stop it. So we have begun to stop it. But there is this shock because, of course, the think tanks and, and the people who fund them never thought, never thought that they would finally be undone by people whose job it is to make a lot of money in the world. Mm -hmm. People like them, but not quite as deranged as they are. Let's come back to William Beveridge because, of course, he was the architect of the modern British welfare state, and he spoke about five evils, and you, you list them in your book. And the five evils that he listed that needed to be addressed through new social policy were want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. And in, to differing degrees, each of those evils were addressed through the, the great reforms, the national health system, the education reforms, the housing reforms, the pension reforms. Now, you updated those five evils, and you talked about modern five evils of hunger, precarity, waste, exploitation, and fear. Talk to us about your updated five evils, building on Beveridge's five evils. I sometimes think we should just stick with the original names and it wouldn't confuse people, but of course things change. Uh, Beveridge took his names from somewhere else. The two of them, want and ignorance, I think it's those two, were the names of two children in Charles Dickens' Victoria in A Christmas Carol. Oh, yes. So the children, the children, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've been doing this for a long, long time in Britain, you know, a sort of similar story. So let me use the old names, but it's a change. In, instead of want, uh, you know, want is an old word. You, you 
people often don't think of want as meaning poverty. I use hunger mm-hmm. because if you think about hunger, it's it's much simpler. And we used to have a lot of hunger in Charles Dickens' day. We had what were called soup kitchens, where charities were good at give out soup, so people wouldn't starve. There was a man called Joseph Roundtree who was the model for Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. He was the chocolate factory owner. And Joseph Roundtree's father had established a soup kitchen around about 1850 in the city of York. Joseph left all his money, and lots of money, because he had a very large chocolate factory. He left his money to create a foundation whose express aim was to end the need for soup kitchens. So if you like, he was an opposite person to those men who fund the think tanks nowadays. And he did a lot of lobbying and other things happened. And by the 1950s, a hundred years after his father had established a soup kitchen, his son, Seaborn Roundtree, was able to report that we were, no longer had any need for soup kitchens, particularly in the city of York. We had no soup kitchens. People were well off enough to be able to buy their own food. Mm-hmm. Food banks only emerged in Britain in the 1990s. I remember the shock when they first began to open. And we just incredulous, why would you need this? What has gone so wrong? Now we have many, many more food banks. I think it's either two or three times because they're growing than the number of McDonald's out there. These things will not be that shocking to you in the US because you, you have food banks and people who are unable to eat. But you know, in a decent European country, they still are not required. You know, it's a really inefficient way mm-hmm. uh, of obtaining food. You don't get the food you actually need if you have to go and see what food there is on the shelves that's being given away for free. So... That's the first of the five. I'm trying to be quicker. That that's poverty, uh, and we have the most shocking social statistics. in the, In the last year, we learned that the majority of children in England, fifty six percent of children in England who have a, two siblings, uh, are going hungry two or three times a month now. Hmm. So what we used to talk about as occurring only to the poorest minority of children is now the common experience, and that's on want. On disease, the way that, that the beverage generation dealt with this is is what elsewhere is called socialised medicine, but it's a very simple concept. Everybody can be treated for free. You are assessed when you say, I'm ill, and doctors will treat you in the order of priority of who is most ill. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly efficient system, but if you're very rich and you have a minor illness and you don't like having to wait... Then you don't like that system. But the the effect on the health of Britain was stunning. We became the healthiest people on the planet, far healthier than people in the United States, uh, particularly our, our, our babies and children and infants. That has now fallen apart. You may have to wait a year, two years, sometimes three years for an operation. Last year, one in 10 people in the UK paid to use private health care. So people are simply bypassing this system because the system isn't working, because it's been pulled apart and destroyed, mm-hmm. privatised from the inside, made to compete, terrible, it, and deliberately, deliberately pulled apart by politicians, this has been shown, who want us to introduce US-style health insurance with lobbying from US health firms. Because where else do they go? You know, How do you grow if you're a US private health firm? You want to try and get into Europe. Where do you first get into Europe? Well, you go to the most similar country, which is the United Kingdom. And so that's part of our terrible health story. Education. We had 
this amazing revolution of all children being able to go to the same kinds of school, not dividing our children at age 11. We had growing numbers going to university and, and they go to university for free, which is normal across all of Europe. And then it was Tony Blair who introduced fees for the first time shortly after 1997 of £1,000 a year. There was a big argument in the Commons. We said, oh, don't worry, it's only £1,000. Compare £1,000 a year. And then he increased it to £3,000. And then Labour lost in 2010, and the incoming government, which included the Liberals, who promised to get rid of this, tripled it to 9000 So we have higher university fees in the USA. Whereas in most of Europe, young people are going to university, it costs them nothing at all. We destroyed school system of solidarity by creating schools which now have no relation to the local authority, the, the local democracy has no power over them, they operate in effect like private schools or competing with each other, trying to get a better reputation. It helps them if, if a rumour is spread saying another school is bad, that's good for one school, it destroys a whole lot. Our universities now, in effect, profit-making institutions, they're private, we can sell hopes. You know, you come to a university and you get a degree with us and your life will be wonderful. We now have approaching two-thirds of all people under 30 going to university in Britain. Mm. Um, they are obviously not all going to get rich because that's two-thirds of the population and they're going to have a huge debt because they don't have the 9,000, it's now 9,250 pounds to pay and they can't pay for their food and accommodation at the university so they're allowed to borrow money but they'll have to pay that back for 40 years now. Uh, and again, you'll know you'll know this because you have student loans in the US. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating about how they were introduced in the US because there was a time when you didn't have them. They do not exist in France. They do not exist in Germany. They do not exist in Spain. They do not exist in Italy. It's an entirely unnecessary thing to do. It is very expensive and it distorts education because it no longer becomes about teaching and learning. It becomes about making a profit out of these customers mm -hmm. who have this money that they've been lent. I'm sorry, it's just, it takes too long to go, <laughs> to go through. And, you know, I, I've, only, I've only done disease. And I've done, uh, on disease, of course, it's mental health now and fear, uh, yes. uh, which, which I, I changed it to. Now, what's difficult about this is it's, very, it's a very depressing story if, when you go through all these things and you actually compare. But the good news, I'm sure we'll come to it later, but I have to say a little bit now. <laughs> you know, the good news is that this has reached a peak which really is impossible to carry on along um, because it's not just people like me saying it, no, it makes no sense this hasn't worked the experiment has failed it is the international bankers being asked mm -hmm. to lend money to britain we now have to pay more for money we have a higher interest rate than europe's largest least well-functioning economy which is italy mm -hmm. uh, if the uk is now seen as a less safe place to lend money to than italy which Amazing. was the least safe place yep so it's kind of got to the end of the road, but this is what a shattered this is what a shattered nation looks like. You know, when you do all these international rankings, or at least rankings in Europe, and you find that you're at the bottom of more league tables than anywhere else, including some incredibly poor countries in, in the former Soviet Union, and you're doing better, worse than them, it's time to say this really, really has failed and we have splintered ourselves. And and when you ask how can it happen, when society does fall apart like this, the resources to pull it together are depleted. People who 
get into the most elite universities have an interest in just looking after them and their group in society. Mm -hmm. The solidarity goes. People who manage to get a house which goes up in value have an interest in, in there not being enough houses for other people so that theirs is too expensive. People who are sending their children to private school, we have many tens to 20 times as many private schools in the UK as is normal in Europe. We just don't have private schools in most of Europe. But if you're paying money to send your child to a private school, it is quietly in your interest that the state doesn't spend more money on state education because then why are you wasting your money trying to give your child an advantage? Mm -hmm. And the same with private health care. If you're paying for your own operations, you don't want to be taxed too much to pay for the operations of other people. So you can see how the nastiness rises. Uh, the selfishness is kind of driven, and that's why it can get worse and worse and worse. Danny, I have a question for you. By the end of 2024, by December of 2024, there will be national elections in Britain. And at this point, it looks as though the polls are saying that Labour, if the election were held today, would win in a landslide and that the Conservatives and the Liberals would lose. Will these social issues and the social decline of Britain be the top issue in that campaign is labor working to bring these issues to the fore are the concern who is highlighting putting a spotlight on these uh, social decline issues in the run-up to the 2024 end of 2024 national elections in britain at the moment they don't need to because so many events are happening so quickly last week our largest single local authority, Birmingham, uh, this whole city of Birmingham, in effect, declared bankruptcy and said it would have trouble paying local government workers by Christmas. Now, of course, this happened to Detroit, but it, it's not the kind of thing that happens in England. And we've got dozens of local authorities now on the edge of bankruptcy saying they will not be able to pay people, in effect, to, pick, to take the bins away. So no politician has to raise this as an issue because that was this week's issue. Birmingham is going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. The week before, it was the government had discovered that 200 schools have roofs which may collapse at any moment on the children. And the day before the children were supposed to return to school after some holidays, they can't return to school. We're now, as I speak to you, there are inspectors going into every school in the country checking the roofs to see whether they have to close the school. And many more schools are going to be closed by Christmas. Now, in the last two years, this has just been the story. Disaster after disaster after disaster, which explains why Labour is so high in the polls. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that they have to offer anything different. And they're, they're hedging their bets because they're very worried that if they do offer something different, people who think they've got hold of a little bit of money may not trust them. So they're being very vague about what they will do. But they don't need to put this on the agenda because it is. What would knock it off the agenda would be something like an, another war, a new war, or another kind of disaster, or, or another pandemic, which is very unlikely. But this, this is the, it is now what is talked about almost every day. People have a right smile. You know, what is this week's disaster? Mm. Danny, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about the state of British society in 2023 and the outlook over the medium term going forward? 
they are really optimistic, despite you know, I, I can I can quote statistics and things. They're optimistic, and they're optimistic because of, of other statistics. For the first time since the early 1970s, in the last 12 months, almost every pay deal in the private and public sector has been incredibly progressive. In the public sector, if we look at our civil servants, the top paid civil servants since 2008 have had a pay cut in real terms of 25%. Mm. Lower grade civil servants, people who run the government, only 12. Now they've all got poorer but the gap between the grades has dropped. Uh, the people who work for the private telecommunications companies, all our telecommunications is private, telephone, internet, and so on. Four years ago, their union negotiated a 3% rise for everybody. This year, it is the most complicated set of, well, increases, but they're often falls in real terms, but most for the lowest paid workers. So across the board, for every industry I can get data, we're suddenly seeing a narrowing of the gap, not because we've suddenly become clever and generous and care, it's because inflation means that if we don't increase wages at the bottom, people are going to starve who are in work. So we have to, and we don't have enough money left to increase income at the top. So by necessity, we have begun to address the issue, which has a very 1920s feel about it. Hmm. Um, because in the 1920s, we began to do similar things. We at one point increased unemployment benefits, which had only recently come in, because we realised that people were not going to be able to survive otherwise. Top wages in the 1920s and 30s stagnated. That's how the income gap began to fall. And that was the context for the young William Beveridge and the young Attlee, who became Prime Minister, and the young Hugh Dalton, who became Chancellor in 1945. Their context for... for the politicians who brought in the welfare state when they were young was watching this desperate attempt to hold together something that's falling apart and that's happened before. And so my optimism is that there'll be young people in their 20s and 30s living through this, knowing that the majority of, of children with a brother and sister are going hungry, knowing that between a third and half of all children no longer have a holiday, whereas it was just absolutely normal, even at the end of Victorian times, for the majority of children to have a one-week summer holiday somewhere. And they they are going to begin to react to what their parents and grandparents did and the mistake we made to allow the nation to shatter. But we're not going to become suddenly a rich country. Mm -hmm. We are going to become a normal European country. Well, Danny, when does your book come out in the United States? And again, the title is Shattered Nation. When will it be available to readers here in the U.S. and elsewhere? It's available in the U.S. on the 19th of September. So simultaneously being published, I think, in the U.S. and, and the U.K. Uh, my knowledge of bookshops in the U.S. is very, very poor. But I'm sure if you Google Shattered Nation uh, and just Google my name, you'll find out it, it's all about the UK. It would be interesting, I could absolutely not do it, but to, to read the book and to think about the most similar country to the UK, which is the USA, and to ask, could somebody write a book in the same way with the degree of what I would call honesty? Mm -hmm. Because it feels difficult to do this in England. I'm sure I'm going to be accused of not being patriotic. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the US and you want a reason for reading Shattered Nation about the UK, simply 
look up all the terrible statistics I list for Britain and how badly it does compared to other countries, and then find the equivalent statistic, what your neonatal mortality rate is in the USA, and then ask, why is it so bad? Mm-hmm. Why is it actually often slightly worse than the UK one? And Danny, how can our listeners follow you? Uh, they can Google me. It's just Danny.Dorling, D-O-R-L-I-N-G. There are only two Danny Dorlings, I think, or there were in the world, and I'm not the uh, police officer based somewhere in one of the southern states of the US. I'm the one in England. <laughs> okay. uh, so, so just Google Danny Dorling. I'm on Twitter. I've got a website. Uh, and for Shattered Nation, the book contains no graphs because, I, well, graphs put people off, uh, but also... I thought if people saw the graphs, they would think I'd fixed them and I, I was being biased because of what they showed. But I've made a website, again, just Google my name and Shattered Nation. And on the website, I put up for free 150 graphical illustrations just showing over time all, all these things that have happened. And Danny, what is your Twitter handle or X as it's now known? Yeah, it's amazing. You're not supposed to be allowed to have firms with one letter, but they, but they, they changed the rules for Elon. It's just at Danny Dorling. D-A-N-N-Y, D-O-R-N-I-N-G. And I tweet a couple of times a day. I try to stay out of um, Twitter wars, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, I'll leave you with one more fact on that. You might see that some of my tweets are in Swedish. I can't write or read Swedish. But if I want to just debate certain issues with social scientists, for, any, for instance, anything to do with COVID-19, if I translate my comments into Swedish, it doesn't result in people writing lots of angry things underneath <laughs> them. Um, which is quite, and then I have to translate the replies I get. So we're getting a new international language on, on Twitter or X. If you, if you notice more things written in Swedish, it's not that we can actually understand it. It's that we don't want to have trolls you know, following us and, and writing hurtful things so that we can actually have a discussion on I social see. media. Well, Danny, I want to thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your book, Shattered Nation, which is coming out on the 19th of this month. And again, the title is Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State. And we look forward to following up with you into 2024 as Britain moves into its election cycle to give us your to give us your impression as regards how these issues are going to feature in that campaign. Thank you ever so much for having me. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 442. The San Francisco Experience podcast is featured on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently cited us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 